We now join the Bible study class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, St. Louis, in De Pere, Missouri. Thank you. Welcome to those of you who are listening to Iowa. I spent 39 years in Iowa, and my mind still goes back there. Wonderful years. My name is Paul Sivaking. As I just said, I spent all of my ministry in Iowa. I am semi-retired and have moved back, and I am officially a member here at St. Paul de Pere. So it's my privilege to oper- offer to those of you who are on the radio the opportunity to join us in Bible study today. The lessons that we're going to be looking at are the lessons for the 20th Sunday after Pentecost, next Sunday's lessons. And the first reading is from Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 7. This is absolutely an amazing passage of Scripture. We normally date Isaiah, the time period between 740 and 681 B.C. We're going to see that A hundred years before these things actually happened, Isaiah foretold. Names, places, specific events that he couldn't possibly have known about. There are those who claim that, that this is one indication why they believe that there may have been more than one Isaiah, a series of Isaiahs. But why is it not that God can reveal to people things and events that had happened years and years before? There was one Isaiah who prophesied. I love the way that he begins this section, Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord. No question about the authenticity of this. No question about where it comes from. This is a word from God. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. The word that is used here is the same word that we often hear as Messiah, the anointed one. In Old Testament times, we remember that God anointed people for specific offices. He anointed prophets and priests and kings. And it was literally an anointing with a flask of oil and a word of prayer that was poured over them. God set them apart for his saving purposes. The word Messiah is actually used 35 times in the Old Testament. It's a very popular and important word in Scripture. But what would the people of Isaiah's time, and later on, what would the people of Isaiah's time, or of uh, Jesus' time, and what do people today think of when they hear the word Messiah? It's always Christ. Yeah, the word Christ is is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. It always pointed to Jesus. In this case, it doesn't point to Jesus. It pointed to another one who wasn't even part of God's line coming through David or any of the Davidic kings. Look at what it says. The word of the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, 
to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. Cyrus was a Persian king. As we'll see, he didn't even know the Lord. He wasn't even born at the time when Isaiah spoke these words. But Cyrus was the, the king of the Persian Empire, a conqueror of many, many nations. He built a vast kingdom. And in 539, his troops surrounded the city of Babylon. There must have been some political intrigue going on. Apparently, the priests of Marduk, one of the gods of the Babylonians, had already submitted to the, the Persian troops. That night, they would leave the gates, and there were a hundred gates around the walls of Babylon, large gates, heavy equipment holding them in place. But they left these gates open, and the gates to the palace open so that the Persian army could walk right in. They conquered Babylon and uh, overthrew the, the Babylonian kings. Remember, this was an important time because the, the Jewish people were exiles in the land of Babylon. They had been there for 70 years waiting for rescue from God. And now God was going to raise up one who, who would defeat the Babylonians and allow them to go home free. This was what they were looking for and praying for, and God had anointed. God had selected one who wasn't from among their members. He selected this Persian king who didn't know God to set them free. And so in, in 539, uh, he, Cyrus, uh, issued a decree and that decree is found in Ezra chapter 1, for those of you who'd like to look it up. Listen to the decree that Cyrus issued. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. What would motivate a Persian king to set all of these exiles free? What would cause him to issue this edict that they could all go home once again? And not only would they go home, but he said, I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. I'm going to rebuild the temple I'm going to resupply you with all the money that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from you so that all the funding will be taken care of. 
70 years after it was all taken from you. We can say it was a, a good political plan that um, Cyrus saw the, the opportunity to win favor with a large number of people, to resettle them in their own country, and to win a, a lot of political points that way. But why would he really do it? Because the Lord had chosen him for that very purpose. Notice he says, I have grasped your hand to subdue nations before you and to loose the belts of kings so that they'll be defenseless in front of you, to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed, just as it happened. I will go before you. I'll level the exalted places. I'll break in pieces the doors of bronze. I will give you the treasures of darkness so that the hordes of secret places so that, and here's the key verse, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. I have chosen you so that you might know me. A Persian, not a Jew, a Persian would know that it was the Lord who had given him this victory. Did you notice in his edict, he repeated those very words, the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of heaven has given this opportunity for me and now I'm doing this for you. It was all part of God's eternal plan. Caught up in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, and the promise of God's Son, a Savior in the world. Well, reading on, why would God do all this? Verse 4 says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you don't know me. I am the Lord, there is no other beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen one. Why was God acting in history in this dramatic way? Why did he raise up Cyrus? For the sake of his people, Israel. What would that mean to those people who were struggling in exile? Their neighbors were all laughing at them. You believe in a God, a God who can't protect you? A God who has given us victory over you? A God whose temple lay in ruins? How can you believe in a God like that? Israel held on in hope waiting for that day when God would keep his promise, when he would allow them to go home and rebuild the city and when he would restore the temple. So why did God raise up Cyrus? For the sake of his people. But there's even more. Verses 6 and 7. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. 
I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Why was God doing this? For the sake of his mission to all creation. That all people everywhere might know that he is the Lord. You know, we sometimes get the impression that, that the Old Testament was written for, for the Jews. It was the story of God's relationship only with Israel. And it wasn't until the New Testament that this mission to the whole world was actually dreamed up. Truth of the matter is, God had it under, under his plan all along. I'm doing this for my people so that I can raise up a, a message that will go out to the whole world. Cyrus was a proud, proud man, no doubt about it. There, uh, the, the historian Herodotus talks about a cylinder that was created with uh, the, the account of uh, Cyrus's uh, reign. And in that time, he talks about himself being the great one, the one who had conquered the world. But here again and again, notice how often the word I appears in those seven verses. I think it's nine times God says, I will do this. It's not you, Cyrus. I will do this. You think you're great, Cyrus. I will do this. I'm the one who raised you up. What a powerful, powerful message this is in the Old Testament about God's mission, God's purpose of saving the entire world. Any of you have any thoughts about this passage before we move on to the second one? The second lesson then is 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. A few words about Thessalonica. It was a major city of about 200,000 people. It was on a major a crossroads of two major uh, trade routes. It was also a seaport, and so there were lots and lots of people who were always traveling through Thessalonica. And from Thessalonica, word about news and, and all kinds of world events would, would go out. It was a key city that St. Paul visited on his second missionary journey. There was a large Jewish population there. And when Paul started preaching the gospel, there was an uprising, a riot. And the Jews in Thessalonica chased him and chased him for a long, long time, trying to stop him from his ministry. But during the short time that Paul was there, he had established a Christian congregation. And now he was concerned about what was happening among those Christians in the face of all the persecution and opposition that they were receiving. And so he sent Timothy to do a little investigative work, and Timothy came back with a great report. The church had not only survived, but the church there was thriving and that the word of God had gone out from them into all parts of Macedonia. And so St. Paul wrote this letter probably somewhere around 51 AD. It may be the first, Galatians may be first um, uh, 
or Thessalonica, uh, uh, Thessalonians was, was first, but this was one of his very earliest epistles. You'll notice that it follows very much the epistolary style. Begins from so-and-so and so-and-so, to so-and-so and so-and-so, and a word of thanksgiving. And Paul uses this same model over and over again in many of his letters. And so follow along, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, that's who it's from, to the churches of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, this church was being protected under the care of God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Remember, those are words that, that he always began his letters with. We always begin our sermons with the same words, grace and peace. That's what it's all about. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He begins with words of thanksgiving, and he assures these people that he prays for them, and he prays for them often. You know, this is Pastor Appreciation Month, and, and maybe it's a good time for all of us to remember how important it is that, that we pray for our pastors and give thanks to God for them. I want you to know as a former pastor how often pastors actually pray for their people. They pray for you on a regular basis. And that's the nature of the relationship that Paul is describing here. I pray for you all the time. And I pray with gratitude in my heart because of what God is doing in you and through you. And what is it that God was, that Paul was giving thanks to? He describes your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Your work how you labor for the sake of the Lord, your steadfastness, your faithfulness in the midst of, of all of this persecution that you're facing. You're standing firm, and I thank God for that. But notice what motivates their work. It's faith. What motivates their labor? It's love. What motivates their steadfastness or faithfulness? It's hope. Faith, hope, and love. You, you heard those words before? In 1 Corinthians 13, what does St. Paul say about faith and hope and love in 1 Corinthians 13? There are three things that last, he says. Faith and hope and love. And the greatest of these 
is love. He picks up those very same words here and he says, we know that God is working among you because we see the three things that last. We see your faith and it's put into practice in the works that you do. We see your love in the way you care for one another. We see your hope in the way that you've remained faithful in the midst of all of the persecution. Your church has lasted because God is at work among you. But then he, 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 in verse 4, he says, We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. I get to preach next uh, Saturday night on this text. And that's the direction I'm going to be going God has chosen you. You remember what it was like when you were in grade school? What it was like to be chosen? We, we always went out to the playground and we, we chose sides. And two people, I don't know why, but they were always selected to be captains. And they would choose their teams. I'll take, I'll take, I'll take. I'll take until you get down to the last two. And it always ends the same. I'll take and you get. And that last person never gets chosen. But remember how important it was to you? For whatever reason, maybe the captain was your best friend. Maybe you really were the best player on the team. Maybe it all the other kids on the field were worse athletes than you were. But there was some reason for which you were chosen. And once you were chosen, you knew you belonged. And that's so minor. Think of all of the times that you've been chosen. Chosen by an employer. Why of all of the people who were applying for the job did that boss choose you? Chosen by a marriage partner? Because you were the best looking? Or the smartest? Or the kindest? Or the loveliest? No, there was some reason that you were chosen by your mate. Chosen as a, an officer in the church, an elected official in the community. We get chosen all the time, and that says something to us about who we are and we belong. We're insiders. But here he says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. What does that mean to us as Christians? Is it because we were the best people, the best behaved people, the most moral people? Were we chosen because we're the best looking or the strongest people? Why did God choose you to be a Christian? And he says it before he uses the word chosen. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
Paul could look at their, their work, their labor, their faithfulness as signs that they had been chosen. But those weren't the real reasons for which they were chosen. They were chosen simply because God loved them. The obvious question then comes, what did he choose you for? This isn't a, a ball game out on the schoolyard. Why did God choose you of all the people in the world? Paul addresses that issue in lots of places. If, if you have uh, your Bible, look at Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and might, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose." which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Why did God choose you? When did God choose you? Notice he says, he predestined you. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. What we as Lutherans believe about this predestination stuff. Do we believe his words here? That God predestined us before the creation of the world? That's what it says. Thus says the Lord, right? It's God's word. We are predestined. Does that cause us problems? question often comes, why did God choose you and why didn't he choose others? And then we get into the whole doctrine of double predestination, which claims that maybe God didn't want everybody to go to heaven, that he only wanted some people to go to heaven, and we happen to be some of those, I was going to say lucky, but blessed few. And that's what many Christians believe, that God predestines some to heaven and others to hell. But that is not a Lutheran view. And someone quote to me 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not a case of double predestination. That God chooses some for heaven and he chooses others for hell. 
God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So why aren't all in heaven? Why are there some in hell? You ever worry about that? You shouldn't. You've been marked by holy baptism. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You are forgiven. It is the rejection of God and his love that causes a person to be condemned. They do it to themselves. They do it purposely. But it's God's will that all would be saved and that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. So St. Paul is giving thanks for his brothers and sisters at Thessalonica who in the midst of this terrible persecution demonstrated their faith by their works, their labors, their steadfastness. He could see it in their faith and their hope and their love. This word of God had come to them with full conviction. It had a deep impact and it enabled them to face that terrible persecution that was going on. Verses 5 through 10 then. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you to Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need say nothing about it. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God. Notice he says, you became imitators of us. Isn't that kind of a haughty claim? He, he makes the claim again in, in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of us. Would you ever dare to set yourself up as someone that others should emulate as a Christian? If those people only knew the real you. If they knew the thoughts that go through your mind sometimes. If they knew the things that you did in secret when you thought no one was watching would you dare to hold yourself up as an example for them? That's what Paul is doing here. You became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a human being. And you know how in Romans he claimed that he was the foremost, the chief of all sinners. It wasn't that he wanted them to follow him or imitate him in his sin. 
He wanted them to imitate him in his dependence upon the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. And so he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul could say, be an imitator of me because I know I'm saved by grace through faith. And I struggle to live a life filled with joy because of what the Lord is doing in me. But then he says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul had become a role model for the Christians in Thessalonica. And now he says, you became the role model. You became the example for those throughout Macedonia as the word spread about how you received us, how you received the gospel. You became a role model for others. It's been said that Every man, and I'm sure it's true of every woman as well, every person needs three people in their lives. They need one person who will be their mentor, their role model, the example that they follow. And it might be a loving parent, or it might be a teacher, or a coach, or a pastor. I suspect that, that each one of you could look back in your life and say, there is the role model. There is the person I model my life after. And then you take your place. As you walk through life, you need a second person. You need a friend. You need somebody who will walk that road along with you. Somebody who is open and honest enough to say to you, buddy, you're out of line. Or you're on the right track. And let's walk this together. So we need a role model and we need a friend. The third person that we need is the protege. We need a mentee. Somebody that we can pass our faith on to. I want you to think for just a few minutes about who those people are in your life. Who is the mentor? Who is the one who, who became the role model for you? Who is the friend who walks beside you, keeps you on the straight and narrow? And to whom... Have you passed on your faith? In order to live a fulfilled life, those are the three people that we need. And so St. Paul talks to these, these uh, Christians in Thessalonica and saying, we know God is working in you. We can see it. In your work, your labor, your steadfastness, the conviction by which it's all happening. We know that in the midst of all of this persecution, you followed my example while I was there. And we know, brothers and sisters, that the word has gone out from you into the entire world about how the Lord Jesus 
has saved you, changed your life, made an impact on you. Paul says, I don't have to talk about you at all. Every time it's brought up, people come to me, Paul is saying, tell me about what wonderful Christians you are and the way that you're fulfilling your responsibilities, the way you're sharing your faith. I'm a member of St. Paul's because I love St. Paul's Lutheran Church. I love the preaching of the word that takes place here. I love the worship and the music. I think it's a great church. But I sometimes wonder, and I've asked this of congregations all the time, what do the people of De Pere, what do the people of St. Louis think of St. Paul's Lutheran Church? I think we've got a pretty good reputation from what I've been able to see and hear in, in other parts of the area. But, but the question I used to ask congregations in Iowa, if St. Paul's Lutheran Church of De Pere would close, would the people of De Pere know the difference? How are we impacting this community? It's a challenging question, and, and it's helped congregations do a lot of strategic planning as they look to the future and say, what is our reputation? How does this people, uh, the people of our community, receive us? And, and are we doing our part as Christians that the word of God is going out from us and all the people in the community around us? I find this passage from 1 Thessalonians to be a real challenging one. If we really take it to heart and say, would Paul write a letter like this to us and say he thanks God every time he remembers us because of our faith and hope and love, the works we're doing, our steadfastness, the way the gospel has gone out from us? It kicks us into a mission mode. Here's what it's all about. I think it's an important, important question. Any of you want to respond to that? Let's move on to the gospel then. <clears throat> gospel is Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Now they say that politics makes strange bedfellows. And this is certainly the case here. It's Holy Week. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and, of course, the Jewish authorities are looking for just about any excuse to put him to death. Now, there were a group known as the Herodians. The Herodians were the get-along guys. Let's just get along with these Romans. So they could support politically the Roman Empire, and they won favor with, with Pontius Pilate and all the politics going on in town. And then there were the Pharisees, who were the nationalists. They hated the Herodians because they saw them as traitors. We have no God except the Lord our God. We don't worship Caesar. We can't use that money with Caesar's inscription on it. We are Jewish people, and we hate the Romans, and we hate those crummy Herodians for backing them. 
But look what happens during Holy Week. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. For this we can get along. We got a common enemy here. We're going to get Jesus. I suspect they were kind of snarky. And that's, that's you know that word? Snarky? That's the latest and greatest. They, they had this smug little smile on their face because they thought they had developed the perfect trap for Jesus. No matter what he says here, we got him. Right. Teacher, we know that you are true. And there's a greasy grin. And that you teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. It was the perfect trap. They thought no matter how Jesus answered it, somebody was going to get ticked. If he said, yes, you go ahead and pay your taxes, the Pharisees would report that Jesus was unloyal. He wasn't a good, solid Jew. He was backing the Romans, and he'd lose a lot of support. If he said, don't pay the taxes, the Herodians would be knocking on Pontius Pilate's door saying, he's telling people not to pay taxes. He's a rebel. You need to get rid of him. So with that smug look on their face, they had him. Not realizing that Jesus could see right through what they were doing and saying. He knew it was a trap and he, he, it wasn't that he avoided the question at all. He went right at it but said there's a, another option. He started by asking, give me one of those coins. Whose picture is on this coin and, and what's the inscription? And it would have had a, a picture of Caesar Augustus. And on the back, it would have called him God. That's why the, the Pharisees hated it so much. The coins all had the inscription, which was, in their way of thinking, idolatry. An image of a man rather than God. And they called the Roman Caesar divine, a god. So Jesus asked for a coin, and it's surprising. What were they doing with a coin? Why should any of them have had a coin? If they were so patriotic and so, so Jewish, why would they have a coin in the first place? They were hypocrites. And Jesus pointed that out in the very beginning. So you hypocrites, you got the coin, show it to me. Now, whose picture and whose image? They all had to agree it was Caesar's. He said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
Pay your taxes. Pay a Roman governor. Pay them even though you dislike them. Pay them even though they're persecuting you. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There was no argument about that. Then he said, render to God the things that are God's. And that's where the real rub comes in. What are the things that are God's? Let's back up just a little bit because this, this passage often raises questions for us about what are the things that are Caesar's? What is it that we as Christians owe to the government? We hear lots of words these days. We could get into all kinds of political discussions here if you wanted to. Should we stand for the, the national anthem or shouldn't we as Christians? Should we pay our taxes? Should we protest when we disagree with the government? What is our duty as Christians toward the government today? Anybody want to venture out on that one? Yeah, please. Okay, obey the authorities as long as it doesn't contradict Scripture. Other thoughts? Well, look at, let's look at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Remember, St. Paul is writing to people who were slugging it out with the Romans. It was, it was tough being a Christian. Paul may even have been in prison at this time himself when he wrote these words. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Pause for a moment and apply those words to today. There is no authority except that which comes from God. He initiated it. He did it in the days of Cyrus, raised up a Persian who didn't even know him. We can make lots of comparisons, Cyrus and certain people today if we chose to. Wealthy, powerful, big ego, but God chose him. And so in, in Romans 13, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he doesn't bear the sword in vain. 
For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to the one who, respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. What is Paul's advice to us as Christians today? According to Romans. <laughs> what's, what's that? Go ahead. All of Okay. Obey the law. Pay your taxes. He even goes further. He tells us to pray for those who are in positions of authority over us. How often do we pray for our governmental leaders? How do we reconcile this in the world today? On the one hand, we are Christian people who are in the world but not of the world. And on the other hand, we're, we're part of this, this society that we live in. We are citizens of the United States of America. Where do we owe our allegiance? What do we owe to Caesar? Have the pastors talked about the two kingdoms? We are citizens of two kingdoms, and God is the ruler of both. And the lessons the Old Testament and the, the gospel today draw us back to that same point. God is over both kingdoms. He has a right-hand kingdom, which is his kingdom of grace and mercy. He has a left-hand kingdom, which is creation and all that goes on in the political realm. He is king over all of it. As he told Cyrus, this is what I did for you. I put you there. I placed the government in place. All authority comes from him. And that's the way he cares for us. He protects those who do good. And he punishes those who do wrong. And that's all the act of God in his kingdom of the left hand. On the other hand, his is a kingdom of mercy and grace. And we in the church live in that grace. And he provides us forgiveness and life and salvation in his grace. I think it becomes easier for us as Christians to understand our role in the world when we understand that God is the one who's over it all. He's ruling for our sake through government to protect us and preserve us. And we owe them respect because they are God's representatives. Even as we owe respect to our pastors and church leaders because they are God's representatives to feed and and lead us. The real question for me is not what are the things that are Caesar's, 
But the real question is, what are the things that are God's? What was Jesus really getting at that day? The question for him wasn't about taxes. What did he really want? What does God really want from you? But Jesus had just finished telling three, three parables. In chapter 21 of Matthew, he talks about a son's obedience. Remember the, the man had two sons? He said to the one, go and work in the field, and he said, I will, and then didn't go. He said to the other son, go, and he said, no, but then he went out into the field and worked. What is it that God wants according to that parable? Our obedience. Right? Next, he, he told a parable about uh, a, a tenant's service and how the, the, the landowner let tenants farm his, his property and then went asking for his share of the, the goods and they beat him and robbed him and threw him out of the garden and killed him. And finally the king said, I'll send a son. And they beat and killed the son. And so what did the king do? He, he went and punished. He took the, the vineyard away from those, those servants. What is it that God wants from us? He wants our service. He wants our stewardship. He wants our lives. Just before this story, in, in chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, we, we heard uh, the story in, in church this morning about the wedding banquet and how the, the, the king kept sending his, his uh, servants out asking the guests to come to the wedding. And they refused and they made all kinds of excuses. And so he just kept sending and finally he went and sent them out to the highways and byways and said, please come, come to the banquet. It's all ready. We focus our, our attention on the one who wasn't properly dressed for the wedding, but the point was the king, the rich man, wanted everybody to come to the celebration. What is it that God wants from you? He wants your obedience. He wants your stewardship. He wants you to respond to his invitation, to know his mercy and grace. He wants you to celebrate the joy that is his. So the passage talks about how we as Christians are to respond to the government, but more importantly, I think the point is, what are the things that are God's? How do we give to God? And I'm not talking financially. How do we give to God? And that's a, a question I think we, we can spend all, all our lives on, but... What about going back to 1 Thessalonians? Your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness in hope. That's what God wants from you. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render to God the things that are God's. Any thoughts? Let's close with a word of prayer.
Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. The word which is beyond our understanding. The word which makes us wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We pray that each and every day of our lives you would lead us into that word. That we might hear the words of law calling us to repentance. That we might also hear the precious words of gospel. That we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That in your mercy you chose us before the foundation of the world. That we should be your beloved children. We pray that you would send us out from this place. From having heard your word and received the sacraments this morning, you would send us out into the world to be role models, to carry that good news with us into a world that desperately needs to hear it today. That we might be faithful citizens of our country, but that we might also render to you all that is yours. We pray these and all things in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.